0: about taking care of our local area, enjoying it, hiking, biking, removing invasive species, picking up trash, education, community. Um, I'll put a link to the Facebook page in the show notes for you. But um, to get to the show, today we are here to talk to Kelly Norrid of Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. He was gracious enough to spend some time Talking to us today. So, Kelly, could you just say hi and tell us about yourself?
1: Uh, hey, I'm glad to be with you this morning. Uh, then my name is Kelly Lord. I am a urban wildlife biologist with Texas Parks and Wildlife, with the Houston Urban Wildlife Technical Guidance Program. That's a nice, long government title that pretty <laughs> much <laughs> means pretty much means that um, there are two of us here. We cover the Greater Houston area. And we basically deal with wildlife issues uh, with public, private landowners, with uh, city, local governments, HOAs, POAs, uh, City of Houston, all the different cities in the greater Houston area. Uh, We also do uh, habitat assessment work. So we'll do, we have people that will call us and say, hey, I would like to make my property more manageable for wildlife. Cool. We will go out and uh, look at their property and assist them with creating management plans on uh, helping improve their property for uh, wildlife and wildlife management. Uh, like I said, we work for work along with local governments when it comes to uh, wildlife issues they may be having. Here recently, we've had a lot of calls about wild hogs. Hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. We talked to... We talk to HOAs and POAs and uh, citizens on a a wide variety of wildlife issues dealing with raccoons, coyote, white-tailed deer, et cetera. We do that mainly in these urban and suburban areas of the greater Houston area. So essentially we kind of go from Galveston to Willis, Huntsville, or sometimes over almost to uh, Winnie. Hmm. we cover kind of that upper Gulf Coast area when it comes to urban issues with with wildlife. And then what did you say your title was? My title is uh, Urban Wildlife Biologist.
0: Okay. And then what was that other fancy, long thing that...
1: The other part is the program that we're in. We're in the uh, Wildlife Diversity Program uh, of Texas Parks and Wildlife, and we are in the group that's called the... uh, Houston Urban Wildlife Pro-Technical Guidance Program, uh, and there are we're spread out across uh, Texas. We have a uh, presence in the DFW area, in Austin, in the Valley, El Paso, San Antonio, and Houston. And, okay. Uh, okay. Most of our job, like I said, is providing technical guidance to people. So, in other words, people come to us with an issue in regards to wildlife or even habitat ecology, that come to us with these issues. We lend them our expertise in these issues to help them manage habitat and wildlife uh, in these, you know, uh, interface areas. And interface. by interface areas, I mean the areas like uh, the suburban areas that are now going further and further and further out into the rural areas, and also dealing with of, of issues for one example i had someone from an office building calling me uh about some vultures that they had and these vultures were rolling up the mats that were in front of their doors <laughs> <laughs> yeah in the office building and they're like we're we don't want to do anything with them. we're just kind of wondering why are they doing this and so they would roll up their uh huh. their their mats uh so we do with that we uh, did, did you did you
0: know what the reason was like
1: why did they do that it's kind of odd i uh i <clears> asked some folks in in uh, everglades national park actually because once i was visiting the everglades and i saw this sign and the sign said uh we are not responsible for damage by vultures to your vehicle and i asked somebody in there once a question why you have that sign out there, and they said that the vultures will come up, and they'll rip uh, the shield wipers, the rubber off the windshield wipers, or they'll tear the vinyl off of, you know, cars that had, like, the Cadillacs that had, like, a vinyl tops on them. Hmm. We'll tear that out, and they said, we don't know exactly why they do it, but they think that there is a additive in the rubber that smells like dead fish. Hmm. And so they think it has something to do with that. So I conveyed that information to them, saying maybe they're trying to make a uh, fish roll-up with it or something. <laughs> sushi. <laughs> yeah, trying to make some uh, mat sushi out. of you know. And then uh, there was another issue that a colleague of mine dealt with. I can't remember. I think it was a BP building in Houston uh, where vultures were pulling the, uh, that caulking rubber sealant from around windows on a Hmm. high rise. Huh, wow. Yeah, so we deal with issues like that. We deal with uh, issues of of coyote is another big issue. We have people calling us and saying, hey, I see coyotes in my backyard. What do I do? My first thing is, "Hmm, calm down.
0: Yeah, take pictures and enjoy it. (laughs) And be glad that they're there. Exactly.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: But, oh, that's interesting. I know, I've heard that uh, crows um mess with windshield wipers and stuff too but for completely different reasons just
1: yeah <laughs> yeah i think crows do it sometimes just to mess with us.
0: <laughs> yeah they're so smart it's like amazing exactly exactly and that's one thing we got to work on too it's like i mean the way i used to be too until i started digging into this like a lot of people don't understand animals think they're stupid stuff like that but um it's just that it's not that animals are stupid it's just that we're uninformed
1: yeah, I I think that too a lot, and it's it's like what I tell people. You know, I tell people that people are good at people things,
2: <laughs> squirrels are
1: good at squirrel things, raccoons are good at raccoon things, and coyotes are good at coyote things. Yeah. You now that's intelligence can't be intelligence can't be measured between species because you know uh, what a coyote can do. Uh, Person won't be able to do is a person going to be able to go out and uh, sniff out a cottontail, right? And <laughs> and catch it, no, most likely not. That's not going to happen. But coyotes are good at coyote things, and people are good at people things. Unfortunately, some, are th- some of our things destroy what the coyotes need,
0: yeah. And there's research that shows that um, some birds, maybe some squirrels, I forget, but um, they are far better than people at remembering where they left certain things and going back to get them?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's where they like to cache uh, acorns everywhere. And uh, this morning I was running around <laughs> looking for my keys. <laughs> right. <laughs> I couldn't imagine if I had, you know, 30 sets of keys I had to keep up with. True.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. But um, anything else you want to tell us about your current job and what you do?
1: Uh, that's uh, that's a, the bulk of what we do. Cool is uh, this the technical guidance aspect, and you know, just kind of helping, uh, like I said, quasi governmental agencies, governmental agencies, HOAs, POAs, uh, water boards, etc., on uh, dealing with wildlife and wildlife issues. And that'd be good for folks around habitat, habitat, issues. Yeah,
0: yeah. And that'd be good for folks around here. Um yeah. So if they want to know how to better take care of their land or how to work with the HOA to change policies, um you could get involved or recommend some other people maybe.
1: Exactly. Yeah, we get a lot of a lot of a lot of calls on white tailed deer issues, urban white tailed deer issues. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, I mean the, I, a lot of times when people ask, okay, you're an urban wildlife biologist. Do you mean you study pigeons? <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. We don't. We don't deal with pigeons. Pigeons are a introduced species. We deal with native species. Hmm. Uh, and but we get a lot of calls on white-tailed deer, especially now in the area of uh, between 99 and the Beltway on the hmm. northwest side of town. Where the woodlands is slowly moving south, and the, and the area around the beltway is slowly moving north, and it's just basically shrinking the white-tailed deer habitat more and more and more and more, and forcing them into smaller and smaller areas.. Sure. So we're getting issues with white-tailed deer in people's yards. And people like seeing the white-tailed deer in their yards. Until you have two bucks in rut, and they start competing for territory, and when uh, you know when National Geographic starts happening in their front yard, <laughs> you know then they're starting to go, "Oh my God, what do we do now?" You know, and it's like, "Well, that's what bucks do that time of year." Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's, it's dealing with people. Uh, it, it, it's dealing with people, helping people deal with wildlife. A lot of times, what I like to tell people is my job may not necessarily be wildlife management. I manage
0: people. I manage people. Wildlife can manage itself. Yeah, that's what I say to some people. people. We got to take care of our area. It's like, no, the area can take care of itself. We just got to undo the damage that some stupid people did. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Yep. Exactly.
0: It's like nature's been around far before we were, and it'll be around far after we're gone. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and um, some people, if they wonder why there's so many deer, you know, they go out and kill coyotes and bobcats. Well, that's why. It's your own fault. Um, you got to leave yeah, them there we, to be governors that control the whole ecology.
1: Yeah, I mean, we have uh, um, severely knocked down our uh, our predator numbers. Which is going to keep, which is going to make prey prey animal numbers go up. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just the natural order of things. So at that point, we now have to become the predator, and that's what I end up telling people when it comes to whitetail deer issues. It's like, well, at that point, you know, you have some. These are the things you can do, and Parks and Wildlife will uh, issue permits for people to help take care of their overpopulated deer issues but it doesn't solve the problem it's mm-hmm. really just kind of you know it's a it's, it's, it's a temporary solution and that's what a lot of people don't realize is you know just simple trap and removal mm-hmm. that's a that's a temporary thing you need to change the reason that they're there not just trap and remove because nature abhors a vacuum if you remove wildlife from somewhere other wildlife is going to go in and exploit those resources there is. if it's your flower bed or yeah. uh, or your uh, the, the, the dog food that you leave out or the cat food that you leave out on your back stoop at night
2: yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. nature is going to exploit that so if you don't want, rac- want raccoons you know, if you don't want 30 raccoons in your backyard don't leave cat food out at night uh, for them to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Food, water, shelter. That's what they're looking for. Uh, that's food, it. Water, shelter.
0: Yeah. And that's an important reason to study history, um, see what Na- Native Americans and primitive Africans believe and believed. Um, we can actually learn a lot from them. Or even there's a quote, um, I think it was Horace, you know, ancient and Roman, um, mm-hmm. 2000 years ago or so. Um, I think it was Horace and I'm pretty sure. And he said something like, um, you can throw nature out, mother nature out with a pitchfork, yet she will return.
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the, the dynamics haven't, the whole dynamics uh, have not changed uh, when it comes to that. I mean, our mm-hmm. numbers have changed. People's numbers have changed. But the whole, you know, the whole dynamic of the ecosystem has not changed. It's still going to, it's going to adjust. The ecosystem will adjust. To things, does it adjust good or bad? Hmm, true. You know, I guess therein lies the big question.
0: Hmm. And then one example, um, folks might be interested in. Um, they might think, oh, like coyotes and bobcats. They're so dangerous. Well, they're not. And um, they're so bad and scary and they kill things. Well. And I'll post this in the show notes. I've got it on uh, the CCERP Facebook page somewhere. But I found a story. Um, Some folks somewhere, um, you know, like a lot of people, they were scared of snakes and didn't understand them. Oh, there's rattlesnakes here. Let's kill them. So they killed their rattlesnakes. Then they started having a major problem in their warehouse with rats. It took like, I think, two or three years and maybe two or three million dollars to try to get that problem under control, all because yeah. they oh, killed yeah. the rattlesnakes. You know, but so and there
1: is a balance. You know? Yeah. there's definitely a balance when it comes to uh, when it comes to that. You get rid of the predators, and uh, the prey species will be able to survive, survive much better.
0: Yeah. They had to deal with rats eating into stuff, the feces, increased population. Yuck. But, um, so can you tell folks a little bit about your background?
1: like? Yeah, sure thing, sure thing. Well, uh, I grew up here, uh, I grew up actually just north of Houston in a little town called Cut and Shoot, uh. We lived on acreage that backed up into the Sam Houston National Forest Hmm, uh, where I grew up. Uh, I became interested in wildlife and ecology. I went to the University of Houston downtown, uh, have a degree in biological and physical science with a minor in geology and environmental science, essentially uh, a degree in ecology. Cool. Is I have. Hmm, yeah. I uh, did undergrad work, uh, undergrad research, along uh, Buffalo and White Oak Bayou. Cool. Uh, doing taxonomic plant surveys along Buffalo and White Oak Bayou. What kind of surveys? Yeah, did, uh, taxonomic plant taxonomic surveys. Oh, okay. So we would go through and do and uh, identify plants and plant families and plant communities along Buffalo and White Oak Bayou, uh, and I did that along the Natchez River corridor also in East Texas and uh, uh, with that I did some undergrad work out at Sheldon Lake State Park Hmm. and a job came up at Sheldon Lake State Park uh, for a a resource manager natural resource manager for Sheldon Lake and uh, I got that job and I was natural resource manager for sheldon lake state park overseeing the daily uh restoration of uh, the prairie restoration out there we had some uh, uh a project where we had like 300 acres of tallow trees that were removed and replanting native uh bottomland uh trees into the area
0: what kind of trees then, did
1: you remove uh we removed, removed chinese
0: tallow trees what's uh, what are they what's the deal with them
1: uh, Chinese tallow tree is a uh, invasive tree that it kind of has a storied background. Uh, hmm. I've heard stories all the way from Benjamin Franklin introduced <clears throat> them to the U.S. to they were introduced in the U.S. after the Civil War in the South to provide uh, oil for lamps and such. Hmm i don't know what the true story is with it i think it was a problem my my guess is how their introduction was was really just um how most of these species get uh introduced into the area uh and that's just through landscape Hmm. Mm -hmm. it's like the landscape trade and they are they are prolific reproducers uh, they will take over areas very quickly and typically they like kind of wet marshy areas mm-hmm. uh, they will just absolutely take over and they have very little benefit to any native wildlife or pollinators or anything in the area hmm. and they will go in and they will take over an area and create a very like mono-specific. Uh, uh, ecosystem where hmm. it's, your dominant plant is going to be a Chinese tallow. We had like nearly 300 acres that was a good, you know, 80-85% Chinese tallow. Hmm. Wow! So we went in and removed the Chinese tallow uh, in the area and replanted it with more native bottomland species like nut all oak and water oak. Um, let's see, a uh, uh, sweet gum. Etc. Cool. Things like that, uh, to replace that canopy that was at one point, uh, dominated by tallow. And, uh, then later on I was asked to, uh,
0: is that, sorry, was that program pretty successful in the lands better now?
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. It was, cool. it was pretty successful. Uh, we got it down to, uh, a zero over canopy, 0% over canopy. Of, cool. Uh, of Chinese tallow but like with any like with any of these projects you need to continue with maintenance of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the you can't just go in and do this and then walk away, you need to continue with maintenance. So you need to continue to remove Chinese tallow, continue to remove invasives from those areas. And that's something similar to what I was doing. Uh, I was asked to be uh, resource manager or look at the resource, uh, natural resources at Davis Hill State park it's a not exactly a state park it's property that is owned by texas park and wildlife uh the state parks uh north uh of here east of cleveland and so i took over doing that and uh did that and then the position of urban wildlife biologist came up uh here and i took that position and i think we're on six or seven years ago and that's why i ended up in the position that i'm in now which is kind of an interesting thing is my background being ecology and this being a uh, wildlife position typically most of the most of my colleagues in wildlife have a degree from uh, like a m in a with a degree from a m in like wildlife management <laughs> or. Are similar. Uh, I come into it with a degree in ecology. Hmm, cool. So I come into it with a little different spin on uh, on the whole, looking at looking at the whole gestalt, looking at everything in relation to uh, in relation to wildlife. So I kind of brought in a little bit different perspective to wildlife, which has worked out very well so far.
0: Can you describe that difference? Like, what's the difference in perspective and the difference in the like training between the two?
1: Well, a lot of it has uh, with with a degree in wildlife management. You're looking at more, um, you know, how the how animals behave, how you um, you know much more looking at the animal as being centric. So you take classes in like mammalogy you take classes in in ornithology, you'll take classes in herpetology, in things like that where you're looking at specifically the animals themselves and a lot of times the physiology of the animals, whereas my, a lot of the the courses that I took were more in like sociobiology, uh, which is more studying the um, interaction. So I had, like, uh, sociobiology, uh, environmental biology, environmental chemistry, um, botany, taxonomy, uh, things that were looking much more at a bigger picture on how things interact and hmm. interrelate, uh, ecology, um, and then also having, uh, classes like, uh, you know, also looking at things like more herpetology and, uh, and ornithology too. So it brought in much more of a wider a wider scope. So really instead of in, in looking at uh, specifically like mammal and her herbs and etc etc looking more the physiology of it, it was much more in the realm of interaction and the whole gestalt, like I was saying, the whole mix of everything. Mm-hmm. But you still need to know the the
0: behavior and aspect of the individual wildlife also hmm. cool interesting and now your degree is actually in biology or ecology, sp- ecology sp- yeah. yeah okay cool yeah great stuff i love that not that i'm an expert as you are but <laughs> i love it
1: <laughs> yeah it's a great job i love it
0: yeah get it yeah you're in the office a little bit but mostly you're outdoors
1: Yeah, I would say it it, kind of depends on the time of year. Uh, Like I was saying earlier, one of the things that we – one of the services they offer is um, there is a program called uh, Open Spaces Valuations for Properties. And basically what it is, like 97% of the state of Texas is privately owned. (laughs) So there's not a lot of natural area kind of thing that's publicly owned in the state. So as an incentive for people to uh, use their property for wildlife, they have something that's called a wildlife valuation. as part of the open spaces valuation for uh, for taxes. So essentially, what it is, if you had if you had an agricultural or uh, an agricultural or like a forestry uh, valuation on your property for the past five years and the year prior. Uh, you can apply for a wildlife uh, valuation, which pretty much means that people can give me a call uh, and I can come out and I can assess their property and look at their property and say, hey, okay, you want to manage for for wildlife. So I will go in and I'll look at it and go, okay, your property, you would be good for managing for migrating waterfowl. Hmm for example, and so I will write up a plan for them to manage their property for like migrating waterfowl, or songbirds, or pollinators, and it depends on the size of your property on what you can do, so I'll write up a, um, a lot of what I get is people who have had property uh, on the outskirts of what used to be the outskirts of Houston, which is now becoming Houston, And their father or their grandfather or something ran cattle on it. They don't want to run cattle on it any longer. But they would like to keep the property and they would like to get a, uh, uh, but they can't afford the taxes on it. So Mm -hmm. they'll look at moving to a wildlife valuation. Oh, interesting. Nice. I'll go out and write them a plan. And they will send the plan to uh, the like Harris County Appraisal District. Harris County Appraisal District to look at it and go okay what you're going to do we think is going to benefit wildlife and not just wildlife but it's going to benefit everyone
2: Mm -hmm.
1: there needs to be something that's going to benefit everyone and then what they will do is they will continue the valuation of your property under the agricultural valuation but you no longer need to run cows on it or grow hay or there are livestock, any type of livestock or anything, you can then switch into a wildlife valuation. And a lot of times, what I'll do is I'll go in and say, okay, say it was pasture land. Well, let's restore this, what was previously pasture land, let's restore it to native prairie. So then I'll go in and look and say, okay, uh, if you've got a species coming in, like Chinese tallow, Chinese privet, Japanese lagustrum those are usually the big ones, veyze grass. Etc. Johnson grass, Hmm. stuff like that. We want to go in and we want to remove this, and then you can do that over year one or year two or whatever, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and then go in and let's plant native prairie grasses and let's try to get this back to a good, solid native prairie. So I'll write them a plan. Typically, I write my plans typically over a five-year period of time, and uh, they can then take that and each year they have to do at least three management practices on the property. And they can keep their agriculture valuation nice. without having to run cows or anything. And they're doing something that's good for that, that. That's good for the environment, good for the ecology, good for nature, and good for everyone, really. Uh, yeah. So that's one of the services that we give to people, and um, we do it at no charge. It's no charge to oh, the, uh, I was going uh, wow. to ask. Well, tax to uh, any uh, person that owns property in the state of Texas.
0: Nice and so are you using to some extent the concepts of ecological succession when you're doing that
1: oh absolutely absolutely hmm. that's what i tell people also one of the first things i'll do i'll ask them i'll try to find the history of the property oh cool and uh sometimes uh sometimes google earth is really good with it because hmm. they, sometimes you can get depending on the parts of town that you're in You can get aerial photographs of, um, on Google Earth, of the Houston area as far back as the early 40s. Wow. So I can go back and look, and let's say that this piece of property, I can go back to the early 40s and look at it, and I don't see any evidence of farming or anything, you know, anything to that nature. And I can look at it and go, okay, I know that at least before 1940s, that this property was coastal prairie then I can go in and I'll ask them what has happened to this property over the time that your family has owned it they may say oh well they have just run cows on it or a lot of around here were rice farms huh. there were a lot of huh. rice farms around here hmm. uh, so it may have been a rice farm or etc and that can kind of base an idea on how I would first attack and put together a management plan for the property. So if they said, oh, my, you know, my papa's owned this property, he bought it in, you know, 1950, and all he's done is run cows on it. Then the first thing I'll say to him is like, okay, well, my first management plan, the first thing I would like you to do in your management plan is don't do anything to the property for a year, just let it grow. Mm -hmm. I want to see what pops up. You may have uh, a lot of really already good established uh, prairie species that are there. I mean, you know we'd be surprised at what may pop up. This hmm. is surviving. yeah, really quickly. So, yeah,
0: don't, pops up. So doesn't sometimes don't sometimes some seeds like pop up even in barren land, even though it's been like five or ten years?
1: Oh, absolutely absolutely interesting uh so i'd like to see what pops up and when it pops up i said use that as your base you know use that as your base if you get a lot of good uh, uh good prairie plants that are popping up then i'll say okay well then the next step that you need to do take care of the invasives take care of the stuff that's not supposed to be in there let the other stuff grow why plant something there if something is already there and it's growing, it's established. <laughs> yeah. when, we removed, when we removed the canopy of, um, uh, of uh, uh, Chinese tallow trees here at Sheldon Lake on that, the, the, the uh, tallow forest uh, removal, we had switchgrasses popping up. We had Missouri <laughs> ironweeds popping up. We had frostweed popping up. We had all of these good native species of prairie plants that started popping up once we removed that cover that have been sitting there you know over the past 50 plus years hmm. wow. either you know barely hanging on or dormant or what may be Interesting. But there still could be very much a uh, a seed bank hmm. in the soil oh, like yeah. that's my one of my first things is that and then at that point it's like okay Let's do that, let's see what comes up, and then we'll go from there. Or I may walk onto a property, and it's like that. It's covered in in invasive uh, tree and shrub species and grass species. And I'll just be like, ooh, okay, we just need to start over.
2: <laughs> yeah. And yeah. At that point,
1: it's like, okay, let's just get rid of everything here, and let's start over. If I don't have that historical reference, then what I'll try to do is go, okay, what do I think has historically been in this particular area? Mm-hmm. And then we'll try to create what may have been uh, uh, historic to that area.
0: Hmm. Cool. Makes sense. Uh, How did you get rid of the Chinese tallow? Did you have to use, like, some glyphosate or something, or you just pull it up, or like what?
1: Yeah, typically well, when, you're, when you're dealing with Chinese tallow, there are a few <clears throat> options that you have. Uh, one of the most effective ways of getting rid of Chinese tallow is what's called the hack and spray method, and that's mm-hmm. where you have like a hatchet or a machete, and you go around the tree about knee. This is what I tell people. Just generally, knee high, uh, a, a hack at about 45 degrees, open the wound up a little bit by like twisting the axe or twisting the uh, uh, machete out. Then you have a spray bottle that has a uh, woody plant herbicide in it, mm-hmm. so you're looking at something like um, like triclopyr, or you're looking at 2,4-D, uh, something like that. Something that's going to be a woody species that can kill a woody species. Glyphosate generally doesn't do much in it on when it comes to woody species. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Then you, and you do this hack, and you just have a regular spray bottle that you can you know that you can get at Home Depot or or Walmart or whatever walk around the tree and every three to four inches to make this hack. So you may put two hacks around a tree, you may put three, you may put four, and spray that into that little pocket that you've created around the tree. That I found to be probably, at least for me and in my experience, that's been the most effective way hmm, of cool. doing it. Okay. You can also use something called, if you have like this vast, vast, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres, uh, you can you can rent a crop duster or a helicopter to do something that's called clearcast. Uh, I really don't like that. I, I prefer myself doing the uh, hack and spray method. because yeah. it's it's you're targeting an individual tree. It takes longer, it's more manpower, more time, but you're targeting one thing with clearcast. you're just spraying herbicide everywhere.
0: And then people need jobs. They say we need jobs and we need physical labor. We're not doing enough, so why not just yes. do do it with a hatchet? You're getting outdoors.
1: Park clearcast is expensive. Not only clearcast is expensive, but mm-hmm. you know how much it costs to rent a helicopter. <laughs> no. <That's> cheap. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. 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 And what's the third method? And uh, the third method is. Um, you can uh, <clears throat> basically cut the tree down and do what's called a stump treatment and that's where you treat the cambium layer uh, of the tree once you cut down uh, cut the tree down all the way I don't prefer to do it that way uh, I think that once you and this is my theory on it once you cut the tree down you've basically ended transpiration and transpiration is the movement of uh, water through the tree the root system up through the leaves uh if you girdle the whole tree or you cut the whole tree down you're not you don't really have the transpiration going hmm. uh and then if you spray around the stump I've, every time i've done a cut stump method uh it's taken three or four or five treatments to do it
0: Hmm, makes sense Uh,
1: so i prefer the the uh hack and spray method myself
0: so with the hack and spray the poison spread through the whole entire tree through transpiration yeah because you're
1: yeah because you're not totally cutting the tree off from being able to transpire to being able to move uh move water through the whole tree that's kind of like circulation
0: in our body circulation through the blood vessels and everything
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and, and if you have seedlings, if you have um, like little seedlings that are under like six inches or so, uh, you can, uh, glyphosate, a glyphosate treatment uh, just going into spraying is, is effective on them if they're about, you know, six inches or so tall, but once they get over six or so inches then they're, they're much more difficult to kill at that point so or you
0: can just tear them up by the roots you got to make sure you get the yeah. roots too
1: if you leave the roots yep. in the
0: ground they regrow right
1: yeah yeah uh so if i mean it's moist soil you can just grab them and pull them up yeah
0: the I, I pulled up geez a bunch of them in one area along cypress creek i'm going to get out there and do more as you say it's like a it's around the pond so kind of more marshy and um yeah. just just like thick seedlings in some places
1: yeah oh yeah and that's that's their preferred area to take over uh kind of wet little marshy areas that's their preferred area to spread in
0: and folks might find it interesting like um i think people talk about rachel carson but not a lot of people have read her books um uh what's the one book she wrote that she's most famous for um spring yeah if people actually read it, um, I think a lot of people who are for or against her seems like they haven't actually read her book. But if you actually yeah. read it, she she promotes or she's good with using pesticides, uh, like um, herbicides and stuff, as long as it's targeted. She
1: doesn't... Targeted targeted. That's yeah. the big thing. Yeah. That's the big thing. And, uh, and you know, I mean, I am... Uh... Trust me, I am definitely not the person to defend Monsanto or anything in any way, shape, or form. But herbicides are a useful tool for doing restoration work if they're used properly. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking when, when I'm talking about using herbicides. I'm not talking about getting a you know a tractor with a 30 foot boom on it. And just willy-nilly spraying herbicide all over something and treating it two or three or four or five times a year yeah. over a course of twenty years, I'm talking about a very selective, um, you know, targeted, selective use of herbicides. And if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't be able to do a lot of of restoration and getting rid of a lot of the invasive plant species that we have. Uh, in the area without it, it's a, a necessary evil at times.
0: And that's all we got now. Maybe one day in the future science gets more advanced. <laughs> we can have a herbicide that targets Chinese tallow, only Chinese tallow, and nothing but Chinese tallow. But until then we don't have
1: it. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean they a lot of times they've tried uh, biological ways of trying to control mm-hmm. uh, invades species i i have a tendency myself to kind of shy away from doing stuff like that because you don't want to introduce an invasive species to get rid of an invasive species
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know i mean uh, using biological means sometimes you know that's like using the idea is using one organism against another organism Are you potentially going to be introducing another invasive species to kill an existing invasive species? So some of them have have shown to work well. There's a salvinia weevil uh, for giant salvinia that seems to be somewhat Hmm. successful. uh, And it hasn't taken over yet. But for an example, uh, using uh, grass carp to get rid of of hydrilla and when that's this was first done that it kind of created a a monster in itself because then you had these grass carp that would take over uh lakes after getting rid of the hydrilla in the lake so they started eating native vegetation and things Hmm. so you know now we have haploid and triploid uh grass carp that aren't supposed to be able to reproduce Hmm. uh so I, I, myself, personally, I I kind of cringe at the idea of using uh, biological organisms against biological organisms in, uh, in, in invasive species control.
0: Yeah, it'd be nice, again, if science advances so we could do that better, but that's still in the, like, e- experimental stage, or sometimes it's just a crapshoot. It's like, let's try this and see if it works, or if we totally screw things up. Yeah.
1: yeah Yeah. i couldn't i couldn't imagine us going over and you know to africa and bringing lions over to take care of the hog problem here yeah yeah you know that we have lion problems
0: yeah but and do you remember some of the other things that have been um really successful or really disastrous when they've tried to introduce one species to control another
1: the biggest one I can I, I think of right offhand is the grass carp, okay. and there are certain areas mm-hmm. that, man, grass carp just absolutely took over. Uh, there are uh, videos of people riding, driving boats through, like, bayous and stuff, and the boat motor causes the carp to freak out, and they start jumping all over and jump into huh. the boat hmm. and all wow. of that, so that's our biggest one I think of around here. Yeah, uh, is using that that species introduced to get rid of a, another species. A, it's. I just don't think it's good news.
0: Yeah, yeah. I forgot. I've read about some cases about that, some things that have been successful and some that haven't. But I forgot the details.
1: Um, yeah, the sylvania weevil has been somewhat successful in getting cool. rid of giant sylvania. Giant sylvania is a South American fern, water fern that kind of floats on the top of water, and hmm. it can choke out uh, rivers, mainly slow-moving slow uh, streams like bayous and lakes and stuff, and it can just totally cover, I mean 100% cover, hmm. uh, wow. lakes. Wow. The Salvinia weevil is one that has been somewhat successful in controlling <laughs> giant Salvinia, and it, excuse me, it hasn't gotten out of control.
0: Oh, one second. That reminds me. Um, go off on a tangent for a second. Um, what percent of like the lakes and ponds in Texas are in Texas are natural and versus man-made?
1: Well, most of them are uh, are reservoirs. They're considered reservoirs. So it's a hmm. dam, something that's been dammed up uh, in order to hold water for municipalities. So most of our lakes in the state of texas are ma- are man-made uh with the exception of uh caddo lake hmm. caddo lake is considered our only natural hmm. lake uh well and uh, but everything else in the state is um has been uh made me uh, say man-made it's been something that's been dammed up or has been dredged uh in order to hold water, but Caddo Lake is uh, considered our only natural lake in the same Texas, which is kind of surprising. Uh,
2: mm-hmm. That's not yeah. to
1: say that, you know, that's not to say that there aren't natural, like, smaller bodies of water, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that are maybe along bayous or uh, along lakes, you know, because you'll have, like, are along long, uh, excuse me, rivers and streams you may have overflow areas uh, mm-hmm. etc but they're not going to be what we think of as lakes as being you know very large large bodies of water as a matter of fact sheldon lake state park um, hmm. the lake at sheldon lake state park was impounded hmm. right, impounded uh, during i believe the uh, 1940s mm-hmm. uh, to supply water to the east side of houston so it was its, its name was originally was Sheldon reservoir some
0: people may even still call it <laughs> yeah just like um to me um what is it some parkway named after some house of representative person or something that's not that to me to me it's still like 1960 or even not that like jackrabbit road <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 um and uh do you think like the lake thing in Texas is—would that be because of our geology and the fact that we got so much sand, or what? You know?
1: Yeah, I think it's just the fact that uh, um, we don't really. Uh, you know, a lot of the, like the Great Lakes and things like that on the northern parts of the U.S. were uh, are glacier lakes. Mm-hmm. They were carved out by the prog- by the uh, transition and regression of uh, glaciers. So stuff like the Great Lakes and things like that were carved out. We really didn't see that much in the uh, in the history, the geologic history of of, of Texas. Mm-hmm. But um, so I mean, we have more like little kind of pothole kind of of, of ponds, so smaller uh, ponds like that. Um, and if you look at like the hill country, the hill country is mostly limestone, and hmm. uh, so you get moderate amounts of rainfall uh in the hill country area and it runs right straight this direction
0: hmm. interesting
1: heads to heads to houston where it's flattens out and slows down <laughs> yeah but uh, we've got a we've got a big body of water right next to us so. <laughs> yeah
0: yeah and folks might find it a little interesting um i'm working with uh some homeschool kids up in Minnesota. And one of them, I'm going through a book, Minnesota's Ecology, by John Tester, if I remember the name right. And um, in there, it talks about, of course, some geology at first before it gets into some animals and ecosystems. Got to talk about the weather and geology first, but I learned that um, at one place in Minnesota, forgot the name right now about hour and a half kind of south of west of um the twin cities um there's a place there that has a rock exposed that's actually like if i remember right maybe 2.5 billion years old yeah and then the canadian shield um up in the boundary waters there where Two of these kids, brother and sister, have been to Camp Minergen. Um The Canadian Shield is like a billion years old, 1.5 billion.
1: Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Here we're, we're – we're, this area of Texas has been what's <clears throat> called depositional for the longest time. Uh, we don't really erode much here. We hmm. deposit more, kind of deltaic, mm-hmm.
2: you know,
1: where it's, um, we have a lot of deposition of sediment um so it's hard to find around here rock that's one mm-hmm. of the biggest reasons you don't find rock around here <laughs> because, uh, everything well we have rock it's typically rock from uh east of from everything east of uh the rocky mountains flows this direction and eventually makes its way here after eroding away and eroding away and eroding away and, eroding away and, weathering, away and weathering away and finally makes it here and uh but we're depositional we get a lot of sand silt clay that's why you have a lot of that sand silt clay uh, makeup of the area here that's why you have the lake charles clay and beaumont clay and such as that because this area has been uh, area of transgression and regression of the oceans over the past millions of years which creates uh, deposits of sand and clay and silt Uh, so we have. Typically here we have we're much more closer to the clay, whereas if you go further up into East Texas you get more sandy loamy soils. Here we have overlay of sandy loamy soils and then we start hitting clay really quick. Yeah. In, in these areas.
0: Yeah, and folks can see that if they get get out into the creek, some areas, yep. Buffalo Bayou, Cypress Creek, um, see the sand and the clay underlying that
1: yeah yeah and that's that's good here because that creates these like uh, depressional wetlands and stuff that you get in the prairie systems around here they call pothole wetlands Hmm. uh, because you have that shallow a more shallow um, sandy profile and then hitting that clay so that clay holds water Uh, so that's how you get the depressional wetlands and stuff a lot Around this area, cool pothole wetlands in uh, in the prairies. That's why we have a lot of wet prairies here because we're flat. Uh, we have clay soils and stuff doesn't run off of that very quickly. Hmm. Uh, that's <clears throat> like I joke with with people when I go to I'll go do conferences or something like in uh, Portland, and I'm explaining to people the topography of. <clears throat> of This area in Southeast Houston. I said, "Yeah, if I run a, if I hunt, run a hundred meter transect across an area and I have an elevation change of a foot, I feel like I've climbed a
0: mountain." <laughs> yeah, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or oh, yeah, I was out walking with some folks the other day, kind of sh- showing them the area a little bit, some parts of the creek they're not used to, and the guy had, uh, um. Pedometer thing with him track steps, and um, when we got back, I don't remember what it was. He was like, um, "Oh, it looks like we um, had a total elevation change of like two or three hundred feet." I'm like, "What? <laughs> Not <laughs> <I know>. possible!" <laughs> but I guess it was.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, really? That's... Yeah. But
0: but around here, like the because of some topographical features, bike trails, um, we were actually. Going up on top of a, you know, it's kind of rolling around here, so going up on a ridge, um, yeah. Going down into a, you know, from there onto the trail, and then from there down into a dish and stuff like that, and then going back up, you know. So I guess between the changes, it could add up to be something like that. Yeah. But um, so we've been going out about an hour. Um, do you still have a little more time to talk, or what's your schedule like? Sure. Cool. Sure. I'm uh, Sweet. I'm good. Good. Um. What about, how did you get into biology? Like, so how did it come about when you were a kid that you got interested? Oh,
1: uh, great one here. Um, <laughs> I love telling this story. I love cool. telling this story. Um, I, a lot of times I will do, uh, I, I'll, I've been asked to come do talks at like uh, universities or something on how to get into this profession and how did I get into it. Well, that's like what I tell people. I credit Bigfoot. <laughs> uh. I credit Bigfoot for getting me into uh, into this. Uh, when I was a kid, there was a movie that came out. It was called uh, The Legend of Boggy Creek. Hmm. And The Legend of Boggy Creek is about the Falk Monster from Falk, Arkansas, which is right across the border from uh, uh, Texas and in, into uh, Arkansas. And my family is from East Texas, all the way from Northeast Texas to uh, Southeast Texas. And so I was familiar with Falk and everything. And as a little kid, I watched this movie. And the movie's about the Falk monster who roamed up and down Boggy Creek. Uh, And it was this ape like, hairy monster, you know, Bigfoot type monster that was terrorizing the town of Falk, Arkansas, right? I watched this when I was a kid, and I was just like – I was both scared and fascinated by oh, yeah. it. Like, wow, that's cool. <laughs> and I'm like – and I'm knowing that, you know, uh, where I grew up, I grew up uh, – our prop, I grew up – like I said, I grew up on cut and shoot and our property backed up onto the Sam Houston National Forest. And the border from my property – or from my parents' property to Sam Houston National Forest was Caney Creek. Hmm. And so I'm sitting here thinking, hey, if – you know, the falcon monster can be on Boggy Creek. Why can't he be on Caney Creek? And so I, was, I set myself out at like five, six, seven years old. I'm going to find the falcon monster. And so I walked up and down the sandy banks of Caney Creek looking for signs of the falcon monster. Well, huh. I never found any sign of falcon monster or Bigfoot or anything, but I found other tracks. And I'm like, what are these tracks? And so there was a bookstore in Conroe at this time, the only bookstore in Conroe. Uh, that, was the ma- that was the That was the. That was big city to me.
2: <laughs> yeah. Conroe,
1: uh, in the early, you know, mid '70s. And so I went to the bookstores, Gear Speck and Roper, and I asked. Hmm. I said, hey, I need. Uh, I want to know what these tracks are. So they turned me onto something that were called uh, Golden Books.
0: Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. I got had, some.
1: The, the the golden book of trees, the golden book of tracks, the golden book of huh. of weather.
0: I didn't know they had action. a tracking, huh? Oh,
1: uh, yeah, they had golden books. I just found everything. And so they were these and uh, different uh, field books that I ordered from uh Speck, and Roper. And so I took these little field guides and I went out into. The the woods again, and uh, started figuring out, oh, those are raccoons, okay? Those are possum, That's deer. That's, you know, So started figuring out what these tracks cool. and what these this scat was. and plants and figuring out what's this plant, what, you know? So I had this really early interest in uh, ecology and in the whole working of, and I would sit, I would look at these, like, like raccoon tracks that were all along the edge of the water and then seeing these little freshwater mussel shells yeah, laying yeah, all yeah. around where these tracks were. <laughs> Same here, I would yeah. Sit there, I would sit there for hours and look at those tracks. Literally, I would sit in one spot for hours at a time looking at these tracks and going, what was that raccoon thinking? Cool. What was it doing? Wow. Why was it here? Why was it moving around here? And that's the thing that really piqued my interest in it. But it was the whole idea of a you know five year six year old kid uh, wanting to go out in the woods and find Bigfoot. That's funny. Wow. yeah, so that was the biggest thing that got me into it thought, man, I'm gonna find Bigfoot. I even actually looked for Bigfoot a little bit when I got a little older. <laughs> still didn't find any bigfoot
0: <laughs> yeah, but huh. So my story is I the same, pretty much the same, yeah. but it's like decades later and no bigfoot, but the tracks yeah. and the foraging were like the same. Yeah,
1: cool. I know what's what's great is, you know, and I'll I'll tell people the, the story and they all kind of, they all kind of, uh, uh, um, you know, kind of laugh or giggle about it when I tell the story. But I said when I told I said stop and think about it though. Stop and think about it. What better representative do we have? To draw people into natural areas than Bigfoot, it's
2: mm-hmm.
1: the hmm. mystery. There's the idea that it, it 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 lives one with nature. It's out. It's hmm. roaming around. I use Bigfoot a lot when I talk to kids too. Oh, it's, cool! Yeah, it, it piques curiosity. You know, it pulls you in. It's something. It's it's the great mystery. It's the what. On the other side of that tree thing, and, True. Um, so I like to use that idea to uh, interest people into you know into nature and into the wild,
0: yeah, it makes sense. The mystery and fascination I think it appeals to everybody. It's yeah. in our nature you know absolutely It's kind of one reason why we um spread from Africa and went everywhere, exactly, <laughs> you know.
1: I know. What's on the other side of that hill?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I wonder, you know, maybe if we think about it, maybe if we do more research, we'll find out that people left Africa because they were looking for Bigfoot. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Yeah, It'll surprise everybody. It all goes back to looking for Bigfoot.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Bigfoot saved mankind.
0: (laughs) But, so, um, did you ever see any like rattlesnakes when you were out there?
1: Very seldom have I seen rattlesnakes um, here. Now, when I was when I was growing up, yeah, uh, canebrake or timber rattlesnakes. Cool. Ran into a few of them up uh, in that part of uh, of the area. Uh, down in this part of the area. Uh, you have to go to the coast, or head out west, head north, or head to the coast, or head a little further south before you start getting rattlesnakes. For some reason, there's just not many rattlesnakes, if any, in the Houston area.
0: Yeah, but, um, unfortunately, yeah.
1: Yeah. So if you go along the coast, uh, Diamondback, uh,
2: hmm.
1: along the coast, you get um, uh, a pygmy rattlesnake and uh, Wow, nice. Diamond. I mean. Uh, uh, or Timber Rattlesnake, uh, to the north of us, west of us, you'll pick up uh, Western Diamondback again, and south of us, you'll pick up Western Diamondback again. But right here in this immediate Houston area, uh, about the closest rattlesnake you're going to get to Houston is going to be Kingwood. Hmm. That's only because uh, someone from Kingwood brought a uh, Timber Rattlesnake shed to me and said that they found it in Kingwood. Hmm. And that surprised me because uh, their numbers are uh, not as high as we think they are. Hmm. Uh, They're actually a protected species in the state of Texas.
0: Oh, cool. So illegal to kill them? Yes. Good.
1: Um, There have been some people busted on Facebook for killing them and taking pictures of themselves and putting it out on Facebook.
0: Sweet. Sorry it happened to the snake, but glad they're busted for it. Yeah.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: But that's why we need this podcast like this, you talking, um, letting people know about the importance of snakes and ecology and being wise about it. And, yeah, some people think that they kill a snake and so they're a badass. But, yeah, right. So you got this little snake that's not going to do anything to you and is going to wait for you to leave. And you got a shovel or a gun and you're like 50 yards away or whatever and you kill it. That's not a badass. That's a wuss. You know? Yeah.
1: Yeah, and it's like, uh, you know, it's kind of like with snakes, what I tell people is, you know, there's like two dozen diseases that you can get from uh, rats and rodents that either directly or indirectly are transmitted to people. Uh, there are two that you can get from a snake, and that involves direct contact with the snake.
2: Hmm.
1: Uh, one of them is salmonella.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And... Uh, you know, it involves direct contact with the snake and not just direct contact with the snake. You have to have direct contact with the snake, and then you have to have direct contact with the snake to some type of whining uh, or mucus uh, hmm. in your in your body. So I just tell people, if you don't want to catch a disease from a snake, don't pick it up and lick it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. You're perfectly fine. Hilarious. Because there are a, a couple <laughs> of dozen communicable diseases from uh, rodents that people can get, one of which is the plague.
0: Oh yeah, great. And
1: a lot of people don't realize that the plague is still alive and well in the U.S. Hmm. Wow. Hmm. Didn't know that. Uh, Hanna- yeah. is another. Which one? Uh, so there are actually hantavirus. Hmm. What does uh, that do? Is another. It's uh, like I believe it. I uh, don't give me lying about that one.
2: <laughs> okay. Uh,
1: from my understanding, it's similar to the plague. Uh, but yeah, the Black Plague still still exists. And uh, we're talking mainly New Mexico, Arizona, Hmm. uh, that particular area. But I think on average, there's like, uh, I think over the past like 10, 15 years, there have been 20, 30, 40 cases of of the plague uh, in the U.S.
0: Wow. Hmm.
1: And uh, that's something that uh, snakes take care of.
0: Yeah, thank
1: goodness. One of our most prominent snakes that we have around here is the Texas rat snake. Mm-hmm. And um, totally harmless, yeah. totally harmless, and we'll get rid of uh, seemingly small rodents. You know, better than anything else. Kind of going back to the thing we were talking about earlier. People are good at people things. Snakes are good at snake things. Snakes can find rodents and take them out. And that red snake isn't going to hurt you in the least bit. Yeah, you know, in the in the Houston area we have. Snakes, and we have up a number. Depending on if you go with species or subspecies, we can have up to like (laughs) twenty-three different species of non-venomous snakes in the Houston area. So we have the coral snake, Mm -hmm. copperhead, cottonmouth, and depending on where you are, uh, timber rattlesnake to the north, or uh, the diamondback rattlesnake to the east and west of us. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, and people are like, "Oh, how do I tell the difference?" Basically, what you do is you figure out how to identify a cottonmouth, copperhead, coral snake, and uh, the two rattlesnakes that we may have in this area. Learn to identify those, and the rest of them you don't have to worry about trying to identify. Yeah. Now, does that mean I think you should kill the venomous snake? No, I don't think you should.
0: Yeah, I agree. Personal
1: thing. I, would, I would relocate it. Yeah. I would relocate.
0: And then, and for, uh, if I'll put in the show notes if folks are interested, there's people who do that, like, uh, around here, um, a gentleman I know by the name of Boyd, um, he does that, um, um, I think he's got training and stuff, but he's removed a lot of snakes, Kelly does that, um, there's a, and I'll maybe put a link to a group on Facebook that's about snake relocation, but they're good about it, they value snakes, they don't want them to be Put down or insulted on their page. You got to have qualifications to be listed as a remover. You can't just be any old schmuck. Um, so that's something to consider. Um, but I'll link to that. Sorry. Go ahead, Kelly.
1: Oh no, that's that's how you took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> it was just about to do the exact same thing. Cool. Yeah.
0: And yeah, snakes can go places that we can't. Or we can't put poisons, and then they're not poison, you know. So instead of like destroying our environment with a bunch of dang poisons, just let the living thing do their job.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, they are a lot more efficient than uh,
2: mm-hmm.
1: they're a lot more efficient than a, a, a trap, uh, because the trap's not going to move around. In <laughs> trap. Yeah, the traps get to sit in one spot. You're going to be lucky if you catch anything in it. Sure, you know. Um, uh, a, a snake's going to go around it's going to find what it needs and it's going to take it and you know I, I still get a lot of people that just cannot get rid of this fear of, of snakes and it's just like man you just got to you don't have to love it uh, but at least respect it and, and leave it alone
0: yeah and I like to bring up some contrast put things in context Um. so yeah like for example um you know, letting people to get people to think about it. It's like, okay, um, what caused the black plague in Europe? Was it the rat or the snake? Do you know of exactly any major plagues or anything that has been caused by snakes? Cause I don't, exactly, but I know millions of people have died just tremendous death. Like what? And some of these plagues, is it like 40%, 60% of the population would be wiped out? Oh yeah, absolutely. And absolutely.
1: You know, it doesn't and happen with snakes. Yeah, you have the uh, you have the rodent as a vector that is moving the disease around, um, and you have a perfectly good uh, natural uh, control of it that you decide to cut its head off.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. You know? And it's like, man, just. Leave it alone. It doesn't want you. It's not going to eat you. You know, and it's not going to eat your children. Don't worry.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Eaten by a
1: rat snake.
0: That's another thing I tell people. It's like um, the Copperhead has other things to do. It's like it's wasn't put here on earth to, like, go after you and kill you. It doesn't care about yeah. you. It just wants to lie out in the sun, eat, and enjoy life.
1: Yep. Leave it alone, and it'll leave you alone. Most of the time that we see bites, it's from people either trying to kill them or trying to handle them.
0: Or being careless. I know, I think a biker got bit out here, but totally careless about the environment, not paying attention, sits down on a bench, puts his foot down, and yeah, like, yep. what's the snake going to do? It's going to defend himself, just like you. Someone broke into your house, are you're just going to, like... Tell them where everything is and tell them thanks. No, you're gonna like be mad and like attack them. Snake does the same thing. Yeah. It's just like you.
1: Yeah. It protects itself.
0: Yeah. And I'll put some videos up that folks can watch. I've taken numerous videos around copperheads. I've touched some. I mean I, I'm because of I think I was like autistic or something growing up and I was like slow, slow reactions. I don't so I don't really like trust myself to like catch one. But you know, I don't want to get bit, I don't want to bother them, but I do like have some videos where I touch some of them, touch their tail maybe, where I'm around it for like five or ten minutes, providing commentary about the copperhead and their lifestyle. That so far as I understand it, and um, pointing out that they're not doing anything, and people can watch those. The copperheads, I'm there five or ten minutes, it's not coming after me, it's just lying there. Then we go our own way and everyone's happy. And I tell it, thank you at the end
1: for cleaning up our
0: environment. For,
1: for putting up with you. <laughs>
0: yeah. So, yeah. So, folks can watch that and that'll give them um, more information since they're probably not around snakes very much. You can let them see, like, that they okay, they're not going to do anything. They can watch, like, five or ten videos or whatever I've made and see it's just fine. Cool. Um, and then... Yeah, snakes can go places we can't, like Scribe Vineyard in California, I think it is. They didn't know it better at first. The owners may be riding around on horseback. Oh, look, there's a rattlesnake. Um, what do you do? You kill it. Um, mm-hmm. And then they started having a trouble. Like their grape crop started to be cut back, and they're going, What's going on? And then the guy figured out, Whoa, it's because the gophers are taking down the grapes. And then, mm-hmm. so thankfully they made the connection instead of thinking, Oh, now we've got to poison the gophers. They made the connection. Oh, um, we got the problem with gophers because we killed the rattlesnake. It's our fault because the rattlesnake mm-hmm. is one of the only things you can go into the gopher holes and get the gophers. Yeah. So
1: it's all about balance.
0: Yeah. Um, and snakes can go places that we can't and, People can't put poison, and so just let them do it. hmm But, uh, so, whenever you came across a snake when you were a little kid, a rattlesnake out there, um, did you always see it before it saw you?
1: I would say that 97% of the snakes that I have been within feet of, I have never seen.
2: Huh.
1: Yeah. Uh, every once in a while you may see one, uh, but I guarantee you, everyone out there, you know, <laughs> you've walked by hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of, of snakes in your life just simply walking through, walking the trails or somewhere, or even walking around in your yard hmm. that you've never known, you've never seen because. Again, like you were saying, they're not gonna you know, they're not gonna uh, slither out and attack you. <laughs> yeah, not what they're gonna do. Uh, most likely, they're gonna either do one of two one of two things. They're either going to stay perfectly still and not move, which is typically what two of our snakes will do around here, and that's the uh, cottonmouth and copperhead. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. have a tendency to uh, use stealth. As their defense, so they'll just be really still.
2: Cool. Mm-hmm.
1: And wait for you to go by. Other snakes, they may be really still, or they may slither off way before you're even near them.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh,
1: and uh, if you ever notice, a lot of times you walk up on a snake, and you happen up on uh, happen up on one on a trail, it stops.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's really still, and it's like, okay, maybe if I'm still, it won't see me but then you make another move to it and boom, before you know it, it's gone. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, that's typically what happens. So yeah, I would say I've probably passed by more snakes in my life than I have, than I have actually seen. Now that's not counting if I'm going out and flipping logs. Oh yeah. Right. Uh, that's, that's a little different story. Um,
0: but one thing, and I stress that point, um, Folks, maybe make sure you let that sink in. Don't just be scared. It's like, oh, my gosh, I've gone past on the trail and there's has snakes out. Think about, okay, no, what's actually happened? I've walked on the trail and I've been by a bunch of snakes and nothing's happened. And generally mm-hmm. that will continue to happen into the future. There's, like, no worry. There's, like, yeah. uh, um, what's his name? The guy in Australia, um, animal guy, famous. um So, uh, Steve Irwin? Yeah, yeah, Steve Irwin. In one movie he and his wife were in, he said um, something I've said, too. It was good to hear him say it because I had been saying before that, but he's got a lot more experience with animals, of course, but knows them a lot better. But um, catches crocodiles, which I would never do. But he said, um, in all his experience, you know, with all these different animals and venomous snakes and everything, crocodiles, yet still, he says – he'd much rather be around wild animals any day than be around most people Mm -hmm. because some people are great they're awesome yes absolutely 100 percent but um some you know it's like it's not a snake that um did uh the inquisition or the salem witch trials or nazi germany or anything like that it's been some people yeah so um, just remember you're out there and you're going by a lot of snakes and nothing's happening and that should be evidence that you're safe not something to worry about
1: yeah as long as you're, you're careful uh, as long as you're careful uh, you should be fine you know don't if you sit down on a log you know take a rest check check around where you're at yeah. Uh, if you if you decide to sit on you know take a sit on the ground and around grass or something, just make sure you're not going to sit on something or you're not going to lean back and rest your arms on on something. I know, and it, it depends on where you're at too. It depends on what part of the country you're in. Depends on what mm-hmm. it's going to depend on what type of uh, snakes that you have. Uh, another thing too if you're walking through somewhere and you you need to step over a log or step over an obstacle don't just hop over it you know don't just step right over it no telling what's on the other side of the log just take, take a glance across there or step on the log and then step off the log don't just try to step over it uh, you know just little things like that you'll be perfectly fine you're perfectly safe trust me there are a lot of snakes out there and the incident of snake bite are actually very low um, until it comes to people trying to handle them. Yeah. Uh, you know, or trying to kill them or to handle them. That's when they end up uh, getting bit. Uh, you know, I've heard somewhere that the, that most of the bites uh, that are reported in uh, uh, emergency rooms are on the hands and forearms.
0: Hmm. And then and if you look at bites in general, and not feet just snake bites, most of the bites are from dogs or from people. Oh, yeah. More bites yeah, from people absolutely. than snakes. I think. I have to look it up to be sure, but I think so. Oh, absolutely. But, um, yeah, and in all the snakes I've encountered on the trail, um, you know, between me and it, who's the one that is scared to heck and, like, runs the hell out of there? It's always a snake. Mm-hmm. Like one time oh, I yeah. saw a young coral snake on a sandy trail sending itself. Man, it had to go up this little sandy bank and then into the woods. And I have never seen a snake in all my life wiggle that frantically and that much to get up that slope.
1: I wish I <laughs> yeah, had it on I mean, video. Honestly, yeah. Honestly, the snake, the snake thinks uh, you're going to try to eat it.
2: <laughs> True,
1: yeah. Because you're big. It's small. It's going, ooh, ooh something is about to eat me. Yeah, so. It so... tries to get out of there before it's eaten
0: and so people got to turn the tables and if you weigh a hundred pounds or you weigh 200, what would you think if someone a hundred times as big as you, um, came up to you or some animal? So you weigh a hundred, um, if something 10,000 pounds came up or something, 20,000 pounds, um, who's going to be the one that's going to be scared? You know?
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: But, um, What else is I going to say? I think there's, oh yeah, when, and it's like I like going out on the trails and I like having the snakes out there because that keeps me mindful. I think one thing people get into um, a rut and kind of fall into slumbers is um, Thoreau might call it, Henry David Thoreau, who wrote Walden. People fall into slumbers a little bit being indoors and in human society too much. And you don't got to pay attention to anything because it's all flat and predictable and the same. But it's important to get outdoors where you have to watch for snakes because that makes you learn to be alert and practice it. It might be like hard at first. and You might struggle with it psychologically, neurologically. It might be a little straining, but um, it's a, I think it's a very important skill to get out there and pay attention to where you're stepping and look before you do anything. Look on one side of the log before you step over, peek over the back of it before you step over. It might be hard at first, but it's a skill worth learning because it can transfer into driving, being around people in society. Um, it'll help, you know, it could help you prevent, um, someone from attacking you or something like that.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, uh, It does another thing that I think is very vital that a lot of people need to do more of now, and it's the old saying, take your time to stop and smell the roses.
2: True, yeah. You know,
1: if you look look down, you'd be amazed at the microcosm of things that just exist in a square foot of leaf litter. Yeah. You know, and being able to stop and just, you know... Look at everything, you know, look up, look down, look around. I always tell people, you know, when you go on a hike somewhere, you should always take a herpetologist <laughs> and a mammologist with you, yeah. because the the herpetologist is always looking down. <laughs> the the uh, mammologist is always looking at the horizon, and the Funny. ornithologist is always looking up. So you've got all three places covered. Huh, uh, Yeah. But, yeah, people need to take a, the take, take a time to stop and look down some. Look down at the little things that are around. Uh, and, and, you know, just take time to stop and look at that plant. Take a, take a minute and stop and look at that flower. Take a minute and stop and look at that little beetle that's, you know, running across the leaf litter. You know, there's a lot of things out there, and they're not just all big. They're all little things, too but slow down a little bit. Take your time walking the trail. You know, don't feel like that you have to get to the end of this mile in, you know, 15 minutes.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Take your time. Take two hours to walk that mile trail. Take three hours to to walk that mile trail. Walk slowly. Look down. Look up. Look all around. You'd be amazed at some of the stuff that you end up seeing that you just passed by many, many, many hundreds of times before.
0: And do, like, you did, Kelly, when you were younger, like you see the raccoon tracks, like what was it thinking? Why was it there? What was it doing? Ask that about the flower or the leaves or the little bugs. Like, why are the leaves here and what are they going to do? And if leaves have been falling so long, why aren't there more? And what benefit do they what, have and stuff like that?
1: What? Yeah, what benefit is it there? Everything has its place. You know, everything has its place. And... It's good to have that. It's good to have that variety of it. With, with diversity, you have healthy ecosystems. You mm. have those balances. Mm-hmm. You have the, the checks and balances in nature. If you end up with these, you know, you talk about like the, uh, we were talking earlier about the, the, the tallow forest, when all you have is just tallow trees and you walk through there, all you see are tallow trees you don't see the diversity of birds you don't see the diversity mm-hmm. of insects you don't see the diversity of mammals you see tallow trees tallow trees are essentially useless to our wildlife here mm-hmm. they also put off a um, they put off an oil to keep other things from growing around them
2: mm-hmm.
1: so it's just like yeah you're just looking at this you know you're looking at a painting of one color what kind of pain is that? Yeah,
2: you
1: know, you need the diversity. You need that whole, you know, not just for the enjoyment of yourself and being able to look at it and see a variety of different, uh, of, of different wildlife, but to keep that checks and balance, to keep everything uh, in a nice, what we call carry capacity. Mm-hmm. Hit that carry capacity where everything is existing it's existing at a level in which it's not degrading this environment Mm
0: -hmm. Uh,
1: that's ultimately what we would like to have
0: and then um I don't know if humans can survive in an, an ecology or an environment in which there isn't that diversity that's not how we came into existence you know we can't like quite do an experiment on it you know but um heck even when we are forming at birth when our cells are dividing and everything i think that involves some bacterial triggers some things like that oh yeah um yeah very complex complicated um we need that diversity for human flourishing survival
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and it's, um, uh, I think it's vital not only to the environment, but it's vital to uh, health and happiness.
0: Yeah, and then if we have Chinese tallow, then it's not going to be the same area. People move here, or they want a certain environment around them, they want certain plants and trees, and that's what they know about Houston, but, um, you know, animals and all this, but, um, Chinese tallow comes in and then it's like entirely different.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, they're, they are really pretty in the fall when they turn red, but, you know, why don't you do, plant a, a Drummond red maple or mm-hmm. sweet gum or yeah. something like that? That is, is equally, if not more, beautiful than a Chinese tallow uh, in the fall. Yeah, I don't think anything looks better. It's, it's, you're hard pressed to find anything that looks better to me than a sweet gum tree in the fall when the leaves turn this just awesome kind of maroonish, purpley reddish maroonish color. Yeah, and I got really,
0: good. I got some pictures of some on the Facebook CCERP page, I think, and um, got more I'll put up, but yeah, I found one that was a beautiful orange color recently. Mm-hmm. And then, as you say, I found some that are a beautiful uh, maroon color.
1: Yeah. That's um, amazing. And I would much rather see forests of uh, sweet gum than forests of Chinese tallow trees.
0: Yeah. Agreed. And oak, of course, can produce some um, beautiful colored leaves in the fall. As long as it's not live oh. oak, of course.
1: <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely i mean we've got i mean we actually do have some pretty good fall foliage here uh like i said that you've got the red maple you've got um viburnums you've got sumacs, uh, and, you're talking about the, the, the uh, sweet gum uh there are some oaks uh the, the sycamores turn yellow I mean, we hmm. definitely have fall color here. People are like, we don't have fall
0: color. Yeah, we do. So we <laughs> yeah. Do to the right so then you have to, just have to see it. Yeah, just got to look and uh, and learn, like, listen to this podcast, learn about things like this. That's one reason why we're doing it. Uh, educate, inform. Yeah, there's, like, a lot of things out there. If people would just go walk in the woods, they'd find all kinds of beautiful things that they could have in the yard that they didn't even know about.
1: Well, absolutely.
0: Like, Purple passion flower, yellow passion flower, prairie nymph, things like that.
1: Yes, yeah. I mean, there's just the. I mean, uh, I mean, we just, I just think about it. I mean, just not even uh, 50, 40, 50, 100 miles north of here, we have uh, the Big Thicket, hmm. which is called the Biological Crossroads of North America. Hmm. Uh, known as one of the most biologically diverse areas in the world. Wow. Uh, four of the five carnivorous plant species hmm. uh, exist in the uh, in the Big Thicket, just wow. north of here. But less than an hour drive, you can wow, see, nice. Uh, you can see pitcher plant meadows. Meadows of pitcher plant, which is a a, a carnivorous plant. They have sundew dew. Uh, which is another carnivorous plant. Uh, a couple of wow. in, uh, in 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 uh, the, the, the big thicket, and just man, people need to just realize. Just drive a little north of here, head out toward uh, uh, head up fifty nine, and then uh, get out to an area and, and uh, turn east, go out into like uh, Saratoga. Lumberton hmm. uh, to uh, Woodville uh, explore that area uh, really neat people don't realize that people don't realize we have uh, one of the most biologically diverse areas in the world
0: Israel. yeah I didn't know it was that diverse wow. yeah, and absolutely. I'm guilty of that too I need to go <laughs> go there go to Brazos Bend more
1: yeah, absolutely. And that sh- there's a there's a great place just north of just north of here, just uh, north west of Cleveland, uh, at the beginning or the end, depending on which side you start on hmm. of the Lone Star hiking trail.
2: Hmm. It's
1: in an area called Winter's Bayou, and uh, you can walk around out there, and there are uh, dwarf palmettos in that area that are so old that they've trunked. Wow. So they're these dwarf palmettos that are standing, you know, seven, eight feet tall.
0: Hmm.
1: That have trunked that look like a, you know, like a palm tree. Interesting. Because essentially what they are. And they're all out in the Winter's Bayou area.
0: How old would that make them?
1: Oh, man, I couldn't even guess to say. I'd say upwards of hundreds of years old. Hmm. Wow. Cool. Uh, yeah, because these things typically don't trunk. They their trunk is underground. Hmm. Okay. Uh, so typically, you just see palmettos. You just see mm-hmm. the the yeah. palm leaves right up above the ground. But these in the Winter's Bayou area are so old that um, they've actually trunked. So Interesting. Standing seven but high on trunk.
0: Wow. Well, speaking of color, one thing people can do if they want to see more fall color, since this is Houston, you know, sometimes. Um, Christmas it can be 85 degrees um have some plants in your yard that are butterflies I mean heck like yesterday I was out when it warmed up to 50 um what well, it might have been I forgot dang it I didn't get as good of a look and I forgot some of these names but it might have been a buckeye that I saw common buckeye but mm-hmm. I saw a butterfly I couldn't get my phone out fast enough to take a picture and it's flitting around I'm watching it for a while Then one time I was standing there looking for it and <laughs> it flew right between my ankles <laughs>
2: yeah
0: yeah but there's some beautiful color for you
1: oh absolutely absolutely
0: but well i'd like to continue i need to have breakfast it's like twelve thirty here about i need to like um have some breakfast before it gets too late
1: Absolutely. Well, it's been great talking to you.
0: Yeah, likewise. Hopefully hopefully we can do it again. A lot more to talk about. Great discussion. I'm sure folks will love it. So.
1: Oh, absolutely. Anytime. Anytime.
0: Good. Awesome. That's good to hear. Thank you. So any last words, Kelly?
1: Yeah, just uh, get outside. I think that's probably um, two of the best words that anybody can say to anyone is, you know what? Get outside and see what you can find, see what you can explore, understand it a lot better. Understand it, know it, and it's uh, you know folks like you that really help out by helping spread the word and get people educated uh, on what's out there. And but yeah, get outside, especially today, man.
0: (laughs) Oh yeah, December nineteenth, two thousand nineteen, beautiful day.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, really take advantage of it now because man. this is uh, Southeast Texas. Uh, take advantage of the beautiful weather.
0: Yeah, it's going to be hot.
1: Yeah, it's going to get hot pretty soon. So,
0: <laughs> And, you know, I hadn't thought of it before, but to tie back into something you said earlier, you know, your advice is just get out. But um, I think to tie back to the mystery and fascination thing, it's like, yeah, if you just get out, it's in our nature to look for mystery and to be fascinated and to be curious and explore, so... I hadn't really thought about that before. Yeah, all you got to do is get out, and like your nature will take care of the rest.
1: Yeah, and I will, uh, I will, I can close on the uh, motto of Texas Parks and Wildlife, which is uh, life is better outside.
0: Truth, yeah, absolutely. But all right, thanks, Kelly. I much appreciate the conversation. I enjoyed it. That was great. Uh, Thank you, Michael.
1: Okay,
0: thanks. Thanks, folks. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you all soon. Bye.